My title for us this morning is simply God, the Bible, and Justice. Each and every day, you and I are reminded of how unjust we actually are. We're told that there are a myriad of inequities in society and culture, in the educational and employment organizations in our country, and groups are made to be against one another, whether or not they actually are in day-to-day interactions. You follow me here? We are told that wrongs have been made and effectually will never be made right. We are told that historic decisions and sins are reverberating from hundreds of years ago in some cases, and that those reverberations will never be quelled. We are told that the relationships that we have with the so-called groups other than our own aren't genuine, can't be genuine, because they're merely manufactured by a society that is tilted in one selfish and self-seeking direction, namely to please the hegemony, the ruling class. This is the philosophy that is being handed down to us right now. And if it's a surprise to you, your eyes are closed and your ears are unopened. But is it accurate? Is it fair? Is it true? This particular philosophy has taken on the title social justice. Definition of which, in one article, is thus. It's going to come up on the screen. In modern practice, social justice revolves around favoring or punishing different, what's the word? Groups of the population. Regardless of any given, what's the word? Individuals' choices or actions based on value judgments regarding, what is it? Historical events, current conditions, and group relations. In economic terms, this often means redistribution of wealth, income, and economic opportunities from groups whom social justice advocates considered to be oppressors to those whom they consider to be the oppressed. But what happens when we take a word that stands on its own and preface it with an adjective? This is Let me give you an example of what I mean. When I say gospel, as a member of First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge, as a member of this church that has made a covenant to sit under my leadership and teaching and to receive and to grow, you should think these words, gospel, the good news of what God has done in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Week in, week in, week out, I reiterate that definition of the gospel to you. Never changes. But what if I say social gospel? What then? 
Church, what if I say prosperity gospel? Then what is your definition? Does it change? Well, of course it changes because we've prefaced this word gospel with an adjective. And we've tilted it toward a particular direction for a particular purpose. Follow my point, church. What I want you to grasp first this morning is this principle. There are some truths that are so grand that they stand on their own, permeating and infusing their reality into everything. Words that are examples of this are words like gospel and justice. These words stand on their own, and when we preface them with an adjective, then we're doing it for a particular end game, a particular purpose. However, once you take these words, as I've mentioned, and you insert adjectives before them, as I've mentioned, you've hijacked the word. You've placed it in philosophical chains, and you've made it your captive to serve your own purpose. But this does not mean that God does not care about things like justice. Amen? I'm going to share with you a couple of texts. They're going to come up here on the screen. You might want to write them down for later reference. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. You shall do no, what's the word? Injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. No partiality, no favoritism. You shall make judgments in righteousness. 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 7. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, because there is no, what? Injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking of bribes. Romans chapter 9, and one of the most sensitive chapters in the entire New Testament Paul is talking about election and predestination, God's plan for the world and your life that was instituted in his wisdom and according to his will before the foundation of the world. And in the context of that conversation, he says, what shall we say then? What shall we say then of these things? Is there injustice with God? And Paul says what? By no means. You see, church, God cares about justice. God does everything that he does justly. And he hates injustice because injustice is sin. There are no two ways about it. It doesn't matter what groups are being categorized where. Injustice, biblically speaking, according to God's word and God's character, is sin. Nevertheless, Christians should be extremely hesitant to say amen to someone who says God cares about social justice. That might seem a little bit loaded. Remember what I said. 
Once you add an adjective to a word like justice, you need, you need to understand what they mean by that. You can't just say amen to things like that because the word social that prefaces justice comes loaded with ideology that perhaps might not be biblical. Justice is biblical, but social might not be. So before we as Christians stand up to the tune of a group of people saying, God cares about social justice, we need to think and be critical before we say Amen. This leads to our first point this morning. God cares about social justice. God cares about social justice. Notice the word social is parenthetical here in my first point. We might say justice as it is exercised and seen in a social and civic setting. We might say God cares about social justice in so much that justice is exercised in a social and civic setting. To that, we should be able to say wholeheartedly and with an open mind, amen. We live in dark and difficult days, church. We live in the days of commentators painting black, white, and white, black, and everything that is in the middle, different shades of gray, to keep things obtuse and strange. And every time things start to settle in certain areas, they shift it on you because they don't want the ground to become too settled. When we get frustrated and want to pray to God to come and do his work, for example, when we get fired up about the Lord's coming, as many of you are today, as certainly I am as well, we see the direction that the world is going, the frustration with which we deal with the media and culture and sin in general. We say, Lord, come. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. But what we're wishing for and what we're hoping for, church, it's a solemn and serious thing. When we say, Lord, come, we look at the sin in the world and we say, bring justice. Do we realize the weight of the words we speak? Look at chapter 5, verse 18. The Lord says through the prophet Amos, woe, to you who desire the day of the Lord, why would you have the day of the Lord? It is the day of darkness. It is not a day of light. It'll be as if a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. <laughs> to get inside his house thinking he's safe and to lean his arm against the wall to get some air to be bit by a serpent. It's this idea that there will be no rest when the judgment of God comes. When God decides to bring justice, there will not be respite. There will not be an area of recuperation. When God decides to start to execute justice on the earth, there will not be rest until his will is done. Then again in verse 20, it's not, it's not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness. So when we turn to this section in Amos, over the last few weeks, you may recall that we've been going through a section called, looking at chapter 3, verse 1, hear this word. 
Chapter four, verse one, hear this word. Chapter five, verse one, hear this word. Now we're turning in chapter five, verse 18 to another section, and this section is the woe to you section. Happens in chapter five, verse 18, chapter six, verse one, and then chapter six, verse four. Church, God has already sent his son, Jesus Christ, to provide for our sins, amen? Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We have to save that without any hesitation, without any doubt. It means if you are a Christian, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you have a stance with God that relieves, excuses you from any kind of judgment. Because the judgment that would have been for you was paid for in his son. So your judgment is paid for. So when we read scriptures like this, please understand, I don't want you to leave as a Christian going, I'm terrified of the day of the Lord. That's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is the awareness as sinners who have been forgiven a great sin realizing that those sinners who have not been forgiven great sin have something else awaiting them in their eternity that we do not. We should not talk about the day of judgment lightly. When God comes again, he won't be coming with an offer of salvation, but rather to execute justice and judgment on a rebellious group of people who rejected his free, gracious offer of salvation the first time in his son, Jesus Christ. We have to understand something, you and I. There will be a final judgment. There are people who are wrong, and there are people who are in the right. And the perfect judge will do his work. I think it's important to note that one can be for justice in the social arena. That's important that we know, as it's obviously expected of people of faith, without simultaneously being for the modern, secular interpretation of the words social justice. This might feel like a line that we have to walk, but friends, our systems are broken. Our systems are broken because our systems are operated by sinful men and sinful women. And yes, those sinful men and sinful women do have a tendency to work things toward their own expectations, their own desires. But that is not unique to a color or a culture. We are all, in the eyes of God, sinners. Punishable until we are forgiven. Sin has corrupted and infected all of us and consequently everything that we touch. But when God comes, his judgment will be definite and absolute and righteous. In my mind and in my heart, the only acceptable solution to social justice is spiritual justice. The only acceptable solution to social inequities is the equality that is found in Jesus Christ. The only freedom from penalty is the freedom found in the gospel. 
No one, absolutely no one, will be with excuse on that day. It will be a day of darkness, not a day of light, unless you are in Christ. You see, church, God is just. And so he says here, why would you want a day like that when your life is lived in inequities, knowing that I will bring justice because I hate injustice? He will not show partiality. He will not show favoritism. He desires his people to live lives that honor justice, uphold what is good and right, and defend those who need it. That is justice. And church, you and I, we don't need the government. We don't need modern theories and theorists or human philosophy to help us with it. As Christians, Amen, if you're listening. We should be leading the way on these issues with our lives. People should know that in the church, there is passion for justice because God is just. When our ranks start to play with the world then we compromise the power that we have in the gospel. Let me say that again. When our ranks start to involve themselves with the world, then we compromise the power that is in the gospel. One of my favorite anecdotes is one that took place historically years and years and years ago. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Acts might recall the story of Peter and James walking around the city and coming across a man who was paralyzed. The man was begging for alms. 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 And Peter says, silver and gold, we have none, but what we do have, we will give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand up and carry your mat. And miraculously, God healed that man through the apostle Peter, and he rose up and was healed, and everyone was amazed at the power of God. Years and years later, as the Roman Catholic Church, as we understand it today, was developing, there was a very famous philosopher and theologian who is still studied today, Thomas Aquinas. And it says that Aquinas was walking around the city with the Pope, and the Pope was showing him all the amazing structures. And he said, Aquinas, you see, no longer must we say silver and gold, we have none. And Aquinas says, perhaps that is why we can no longer say, stand up and take your mat. As soon as we involve ourselves with the things the world adores, we lose the power that is in the gospel. It's not about our buildings. It's not even about the United States of America. If we were in China and we were in Christ, we would be worshiping Jesus on the Lord's day. We thank the Lord for the freedoms that we have, but we don't come together in this building to make a big deal about the USA. We worship Jesus Christ and him alone. And we've got to keep our focus there, church. Republican, independent, libertarian, Democrat, crazy. It doesn't matter if you like your left shoe on your right foot. 
when Jesus comes on his horse, he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will be bringing justice. So as you fiddle around with all these ideologies being passed down to you, remember that every moment you spend in humanistic philosophy, you are forfeiting the power that is yours in Christ and the gospel. Do you want to be able to say to people, take up your mat and walk? Or do you want to have your back up against the wall while you try to justify you being a Christian on one hand and advocating humanistic philosophy on another? I'm going to be very candid and forthright with you. The SBC is doing this right now. The SBC is trying with all their might to walk a line as a group, not this church, not many other churches. They're walking this line because, as they said in June's annual conference, the world is watching us. Here's the problem I have with that. I'm not really concerned with what the world has to say. I'm concerned about the eyes of the God that goes to and fro and who will judge every man according to his work. What do we care what the world says? Right? We forfeit our power when we go, we need to be careful with the wording on this resolution because the world is watching. Seriously? Even Imbram Kendi, who is one of the proponents of this critical race theory that is being propagated, is shying away from it now because everybody is arguing it to the floor. So even the proponents of this worldly philosophy are backing off on it because they don't want to go down with the ship. And now we as Christians who are trying to be friendly to the world look like, well, I'm not going to finish that statement. We look mentally incompetent. Because instead of staying with the word of God, instead of holding with both hands to the inspired, inerrant word of God, we care what the world thinks. And this is why we're losing our power. I don't know about you, church, but there comes a time in your life, in your faith, when now I lay me down to sleep will not fix your marriage. When now I lay me down to sleep will not redeem your prodigal child. When now I lay me down to sleep will not grow you in your faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to grow up as a church. We've got to stop stop playing with the toys that the world is offering us because it is making us spiritually weak and mentally inept. We need to bury our hearts and our minds in the word of God. And anybody who says otherwise, we need to tell them kindly, with gentleness. I disagree with you with every ounce of my body. I think you're wrong. In an article titled, The Social Media Examined Life is Not the One That Sustains Us. That's a long title, but it's good enough for me to read again. In a recent article titled, The Social Media Examined Life, this is a playoff of Socrates, an unexamined life is not worth living. The social media examined life is not the one that sustains us. 
An author who I recommend to you, Karen Swallow Pryor, she's a teacher at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, writes this paragraph. It's a great paragraph. Recently, after giving a talk on such effects of this technical age, I was asked what visions we might offer to counter these false ones. One suggestion I gave is to focus on the joys of everyday life, ordinary life, to counter the romantic notion that in order to serve God well, we must be doing big things and change the world. The truth is that we serve God best, he writes, when we love our neighbors and each other faithfully and well in whatever ways God calls us. That's such a good paragraph. I think because she's saying gently, take out the trash. You know what I mean? Husbands, when you're in the kitchen, smack your wife on the butt. Text your kids and tell them, I love you. I prayed for you today. Wives, bump up against your husband and tell him, you are a stud. I am so grateful God gave you to me. When you're at work, don't try to take your company and flip it on its head because it's not a Christian company. Just Take every little opportunity to be the witness of Jesus Christ that God gives you. If you aren't doing the big things, it doesn't mean you aren't potent in the little things. The little things are sometimes so much more significant than the big ones. If we didn't have Instagram, if we didn't have Facebook, if every time we did something, we didn't take a picture of it and post it, you know, it's like when a, if a tree fell in the forest and nobody was around, does it make a noise? I, you wonder sometimes, can a church do something good without posting it? What did the apostle do without social media? I think the challenge for you and me, guys, is this. Social media has been so popularized, excuse me, Justice in the social arena has been so popularized that it's compromised. It's not social and it's not justice. It's neither anymore. My question for you is, how are you living justly for your neighbors? I think that's what Pryor is saying here. I think she's saying, we're so focused on the big things that we forget that God is just calling us to love our neighbors well. Are we loving our neighbors well? our coworkers, strangers in the street, or are we screaming at that person who did not accelerate when the light turned green? Why are you laughing? Right? Some of you have loose steering wheels because you drive with so much tension. Don't worry about what the world is saying or doing. Promoting or persecuting. Love God and love others. I believe that is God's formula for social justice.
Paul once wrote these words in Philippians 4, 8. Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything that's worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's get our minds focused on the things of God and our lives will follow in accordance. And whatever the world has to say, whatever the world has to suggest, it won't matter because you've been thinking about whatever is honorable, pure, lovely, just, commendable, anything that is worthy of praise. God cares about social justice, but social must be parenthetical. God cares about justice, period. Now, that means sometimes you're going to fall on one side of an issue, and then that means that other times you're going to fall on the other side of the issue. It's not about which side of the issue you fall on. This is the question. Do I fall on God's side? Am I standing where I can say wholeheartedly and with a clear conscience, I'm standing on this issue where God wants me to stand? Secondly, God cares not only about social justice, God cares about religious justice. God also cares about religious justice. Look at what he says in um, verse 21 here. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But secondly, God cares about religious justice. And what I mean by this is simple. God cares that our faith is lived out and practiced in a just way. In other words, in a righteous way, a genuine way, not in a way that is hypocritical or contrary to what we say we believe. Oh, we should all feel the sting of that a little bit. Amen? We sometimes say we hold to convictions that we don't monitor in ourselves. We sometimes say we believe the Bible and then entertain nonsense like it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe sincerely. That's trash. We cannot say that we hold to the scriptures and entertain falsehood like that simultaneously. We either hold to God's word or we don't. If we hold to God's word, so we say, and hold to this other religious, philosophical ideology also, then we are guilty of the very thing God is talking about here. Namely, hypocrisy. We have to live a life of worship to the glory of God, a life that leads to corporate worship, to the glory of God. In other words, when we come together on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning, all of us, 
together, whether we're online or in person, but particularly in person here as we are gathered side by side, as we come together to lift up the name of Jesus Christ and to praise him as God's people. The hope in the prayer is, is that we've been doing it for six days already. And this is the climax. This is the moment when we come together and lift up a unified voice of praise as a local church, which is an expression of the body of Christ at large. And we say, we are Christians together. That is the point of coming together corporately. But when we come together corporately, if we're living out of sync and alignment with the will of God, for his people in general or our life in particular, then we're breaching the bounds that God wants us to remain inside. And that's when hypocrisy begins. Consider the following. Psalm 39, verse 1. In Psalm 39, verse 1, it says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. The negativity, it's got to stop. The backbiting, it's got to stop. The gossip, it's got to stop. Each and every one of us should feel that sting a little bit. Amen? Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, it says that we shouldn't go to church with an unresolved issue with a brother. But when we go to church and realize we have something between us and someone else, before we worship, we should get that thing right. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, says that we should take every extreme to keep our minds pure from immorality. And start plucking out your eyes. What Jesus is saying is take sin seriously. Amen? Leave your glasses in the car. Do what you have to do, Christian, to make sure that when you get to worship, you can worship with a clear mind and a clear heart so that your worship is just. It's so important to God, in fact, that he uses this graphic language to get a very simple point across regarding the importance of justice in our worship. Look at the language beginning in verse 21. He says, I hate. And then right after that, I despise. And then right after that, I take no delight. And right after that, even though you offer me your burnt offerings, etc., I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. I wonder how many churches, I wonder how many corporate worshiping or corporate worship experiences are done and everybody on the program team goes, that was amazing. And God goes, I didn't listen to a word because the smoke was amazing and the lights were amazing and the vocalists were amazing, and the instruments were fantastic, and everything came off wonderful, but it was not a sacrifice to the Lord. It was a sacrifice to their own ability 
to play an instrument or sing a song. God says, I don't listen to that stuff. I listen to worship that is given to me with humility, sincerity. To close, there should be a strong ingredient of justice in the life of Christian men and women. But how do we exercise justice in our own lives? I want to share with you two simple suggestions, and then we'll wrap up with this. First of all, we can treat people with justice. We can treat people with justice, regardless of a person's color, education, background, socioeconomic standing. We should treat them like people who are made in the image and likeness of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, you might say, yeah, but Joe, that guy's a criminal, or that lady's a criminal. And you know what? You might be right. But in the scheme of things, we're all criminals to God until we are forgiven and redeemed. Until God the Holy Spirit regenerates us, we are all lost. But even as lost people, we are made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore we've got to treat people like that, justly. Ultimately, there are two people in the world, sinners who are lost and sinners who are saved by grace. Now, in those groups, there are a lot of different versions, but there's only two groups. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. There is one human race, and every member of it, according to Hebrews 4.13, will give an account to the living God. Doesn't matter what their background is. So let's treat people with justice. Secondly, we can treat ideas with justice. We can treat ideas with justice. Listen, if we are just according to God's standard, then it doesn't matter, for example, what side of the aisle an idea might appear on. If the aisle, excuse me, if the truth is the truth, it doesn't matter where it falls. We are beholden to the word of God, not to any political party or ideology. Amen? What matters is God's truth. And so Paul writes this in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirit of this world, rather than Christ. Don't be taken captive by any idea except an idea that is responsible to Christ. Listen, worship giving, service, these add up to nothing when the church neglects its civic responsibility. We have to live lives that are just. God hates injustice. He loves justice. If we don't live in a mentality or an attitude that celebrates the justice of God, regardless of where justice might fall, then we can send a mixed message to the world, and to each other. When the church overlooks the poor and downtrodden, for example, the widows and orphans, the mentally bruised, the emotionally broken, it loses its power and influence. But this is the entire point of the gospel. To seek 
and to save the lost, to heal the hurting, and to proclaim the Lord's favor. <laughs> 